Welcome to Elixir Mix, your weekly Elixir podcast talking with members of the community. My name is Mark Erickson, and on our panel today, we have Josh Adams. Greetings, humans. And today we have our special guest, Andrew Howe. Andrew, could you say hello? Hello, hello. This episode is sponsored by Sentry.io. Recently, I came across a great tool for tracking and monitoring problems in my apps. Then I asked them if they wanted to sponsor the show and allow me to share my experience with you. Sentry provides a terrific interface for keeping track of what's going on with my app. It also tracks releases so I can tell if what I deployed makes things better or worse. They give full stack traces and as much information as possible about the situation when the error occurred to help you track down the errors. Plus, one thing I love, you can customize the context provided by Sentry. So, if you're looking for specific information about the request, you can provide it. It automatically scrubs passwords and secure information, and you can customize the scrubbing as well. Finally, it has a user feedback system built in that you can use to get information from your users. Oh, and I also love that they support open source to the point where they actually open source Sentry if you want to self-host it. Use the code devchat at sentry.io to get two months free on Sentry's small plan. That's code devchat at sentry.io. And Andrew, uh, so I invited you on because of a talk that you gave, and we'll get into that in a minute. But first, can you just kind of give us a little bit of background about who you are as a developer and kind of what your story has been? Sure. I, um, I got started in the Ruby community. Uh, this is way back in 2006 or seven at this point, uh, building Rails apps when Rails got really big and popular. Um, just graduated college at that point and got really sucked into the, the Ruby community. Um, and I stayed there for, you know, uh, for quite a bit of time, probably eight or nine years or so. And then uh, during my prior job, um, uh, I, I worked at Carbon 5, which is a software development consultancy. And uh, we started kind of hearing a lot of noise around Elixir. I had a couple, a couple of coworkers get really fired up about it. And we started investigating it uh, kind of on our free time listening to talks from people in the community, talking about the, the um, Erlang VM, kind of like looking at cool features in Elixir, and we just got really stoked about it. Uh, Carbon 5 was fortunate, uh, I was fortunate enough to have Carbon 5 sponsor a lot of my own development efforts, and I was given a lot of uh, open, I was given kind of an open mandate to kind of explore the technology. And so- I think we've uh, had some uh, people from Carbon 5 on before, and it's been, it's really cool. It sounds like they're doing some neat stuff. And that's, that's really awesome that they were kind of giving you like this uh, permission to, to explore. It's like, hey, what you learn helps us provide better for our customers, our service or whatever. So that's awesome. Absolutely. Yeah. My, form, my former coworkers, uh, Anna Niceberg and uh, Chris Keithley, uh, all kind of uh, got really stoked and fired up about it. And uh, that excitement was contagious. Anyways, as I currently work at Lyft, uh, the transportation company, and unfortunately we do not do any Elixir, but I think a lot of the uh, concepts that I talked about in my talk around domain-driven design, around software architectures, are still really relevant uh, to our work today. And yeah, I, I, I definitely do miss uh, programming as my uh, programming Elixir in my day job, but uh, I do follow the community from a distance. Nice. But yeah, so one of the things that you presented on was uh, domain-driven design. And let's see, that was, which uh, conference was that at? Uh, I spoke at Elixir Days about that. And also MPEX, both yes. of them were last year. Great, great. Yeah, and those are, um, we'll make sure to have a, a link to that talk in our show notes. Um, but 
one of the things I, I totally agree with you, like domain-driven design is not a language-specific thing. It is a concept of how you organize code. And I think anyone can benefit from thinking more about um, the boundaries of their code. And just, you know, if you've ever worked on one of those monolithic apps where everything becomes entangled with everything else and all these cross dependencies, then moving anything becomes incredibly painful. And it sounds like that might have been some of your story, Andrew, on like the background of how you ended up coming to this domain-driven design kind of perspective. You want to talk about that? Absolutely. My, uh, a couple of companies ago, I was at a startup which also had a Rails monolith. This is kind of my origin story uh, into domain-driven design. But essentially, uh, there was just a really large monolith that was just very difficult to decompose. Um, I mean, there were lots of reasons for that, right? Like um, we were resource constrained, didn't always have the velocity or the or the budget to uh, devote to not build features and then instead work on infrastructure. But that being said, um, it was just everybody knew that there was a problem because this code base was so difficult to work with. Um, it was just uh, really fragile. Uh, it, it was 700,000 lines of Ruby code. We, we took a look at it and we we're like, this is just, this is difficult to maintain. Um, it had, it at the point, at the point that I had been there, it was about five years old, uh, which is not super old, but also old enough to maintain a lot, uh, to acquire a lot of debt. It's certainly a mature so, project at that point. It's a mature Ruby project. <laughs> yeah, um, and as you know, um, as uh, many as many of us uh, Elixirists are also former Rubyists. Um, Ruby code lets you do anything, and lets you uh, glom on any code onto anything else, um, and uh, that just hands you a, a a nice way to shoot yourself in the foot. And we definitely did that. Um, and then it was just impossible to maintain or impossible to upgrade. And so we, we said, okay, well, we're going to go to microservices, uh, right? Like uh, we can just rebuild new apps um, on the side, just pull out uh, parts of the system and pull it out. This was way harder than we thought it was going to be. Um, so I was put on the project to investigate that. And then when, real, uh, when I just started looking at it, I said, I don't even know how many apps would have to come out of this. I don't even know where to start. So uh, one of my colleagues uh, handed me the book, Domain Driven Design, and said, I think you should read this. I think there's a lot of good ideas in this. Uh, and so I dutifully did that. <laughs> I took the book home, and I tried to read it from start to back, and actually I got really lost. Um, uh, it's just, a, uh, sorry, the Eric Evans book, Domain Driven Design, the original, uh, is a little difficult to read if you don't know what you're doing. <laughs> and there's a lot of concepts that just get thrown at you. But um, I did stumble my, my way through it, and a few big concepts stuck out to me. Um, and that kind of, uh, what I talked about in my talk was around this exercise called context mapping. And context mapping lets you develop an artifact like a diagram uh, with your team that visualizes all the uh, domain spaces of your application and just doing that exercise was super helpful for me to be to stand back and say oh i think there's approximately you know seven to ten domains in this app and actually doing that exercise made me realize like oh yeah these two domains are highly coupled 
this one is actually fairly isolated, why don't we start with the isolated one to, uh, to pull out? Cause that's going to be the easiest way to start. That's, that's nice. I like that as a, as an approach. And I think you, you really kind of cover that in your video. So I really do encourage people to watch the video. Um, just, I'm going to give one plug here for your video, your, your conference talk. Um, um, I was trying to encourage the use of Phoenix contexts at work and saying, you know, but a lot of it was like teaching the team and kind of bringing them up and like, this is the principle of how we arrange this. And not just like you put this code here, this code goes there. It's like the principle so they can govern themselves and figure out where the stuff goes. And, and so I, I, a, a coworker recommended that your talked and I thought this is, I watched it and it's like, this is perfect. I share it with the team and they get it. And it's like, okay, so thank you, Andrew. You saved me a ton of time trying to explain how to, how to think about this. So I do encourage people to do that. Uh, but yes, like what you're talking about right, right there is like the process that we as a human have to go through separate from code of just like, how do I think about and identify the pieces of the system just conceptually? So, I, and, and, and how did you do that? Like, I think you're using like sticky notes, right? Yeah. Um, it's, it's supposed to be kind of a lightweight process. I mean, um, the way I did it at that company, uh, which I've kind of tuned and tweaked a little bit uh, moving forward, but we actually just ran a like a, a a script that basically like tried to generate a UML diagram. And then from there, you can kind of like take a step back and see some shapes or clusters emerge. Mm -hmm. But oftentimes, uh, this is supposed to be a lightweight exercise. And, and subsequently, um, when I was at Carbon5, we do a lot of this domain modeling or context mapping exercises with sticky notes. So we get the whole team in a room and we basically start uh, writing out nouns and verbs. I also talk about this in the video. And uh, it's supposed to be lightweight. It's, you know, you take the stickies, you pull them apart, you rearrange them. Um, and then the whole team gets this understanding, this holistic understanding of what's in the system. Um, and then you get these good conversations too. You know, you, you get into these arguments or like, you realize that you have two names for the same things. Um, these are really productive conversations that, uh, yeah, like we don't do enough of, in my opinion. I like when it emerges that you have uh, two things with the same name, or rather, you know, a thing doing two roles. Um, that's that's benefited me. This process has helped me find those. Yeah, and I think that's that's a lot of that's just like you have different people in different parts of the organization, and what they call. Um, a customer is different from what someone else calls it. Maybe they call it a lead in the sales department and then somewhere, you know, and then it transitions into becoming a customer. But so people have these different concepts of what they, of what they represent. So I don't know. I know you talk more about that. Is there anything you want to elaborate on there, Andrew? I think it's important to have somebody from, uh, from business there. Uh, if it's just the engineering team, you're going to get lost and you're not going to have someone actually point you to the source of truth. Uh, oftentimes this is the team's product owner, but very often actually there are like collaborating teams that you kind of work with on the side that are actually important to be in the conversation. So for example, um, if I'm working on a product feature for my company, I may not actually think to bring in marketing, but very oftentimes marketing is actually putting requests through product to, for you to build. So uh, think a little bit broader about, who you're including in this conversation. It also might feel kind of weird to them, but it also could be really fun because they get this insight into your system without getting overwhelmed by the technical details of what the system is, but it's just more about what's in the system, how do we represent things? And I think that's a big eye-opener for everyone. Yeah, I'm, I'm blanking. I'm trying to remember 
there's an image that represents this very well that I saw recently showing like different people's views of the system. And I think this collaboration with the team does do a good job of giving like those people the view of the corner of the system that matters to them. So I want to come back to, um, you know, kind of coming from Ruby into Phoenix. So initially with the early days of Phoenix, it really was kind of modeled very much like rails where like they, you know, the schemas were even called models or in, in the models folder. And it's very much like a one-to-one -one kind of mapping. And now like with uh, Phoenix 1.4, they've really pushed more into um, having this idea of contexts. And I think contexts are a good beginning place to, for like mapping your domains. And um, like with the Phoenix generators, um, you're able to say, give me a new context and it'll, it'll kind of start to plug one out for you, but it's not like finished. You have to keep going and thinking about it. Whereas what I, what I like and appreciate about those new generators is the older style generators would generate stuff that really wasn't considered best practice code, but people thought, oh, this is the way I'm supposed to do it. Uh, so I'm just curious, Andrew, as you've uh, been kind of working through this process of pulling out this big, Ruby, this big Ruby and Rails app and trying to identify these pieces. Uh, and did that experience, like were you then trying to transfer that project piecewise into an Elixir project? Or was that a separate project where you started really working on Elixir? So the way I got, uh, I started applying this to Elixir was mainly because I got excited about context when they first came out. I think Chris McCord talked a little bit about the inspiration for context. Um, he kind of me fresh briefly mentioned how uh, the idea came from domain driven design. And then I thought, Oh yeah, I, <laughs> I did that. <laughs> yeah. uh, well, um, I actually gave a similar talk about this at RailsConf uh, some years prior. And in that talk, I talked about how I use rails engines or I, or I kind of like threw out an idea for using Rails engines. Um, but Rails engines are pretty heavyweight. Um, for, the, for those of us who aren't familiar with uh, Rails engines, they're essentially like ways to bundle mini Rails apps in a larger Rails app, which is uh, uh, actually a very nifty feature uh, for uh, as Elixir umbrella apps. But, um, but, I don't think it has to be that heavyweight, and that's why I really like context because they kind of like, uh, like the generators automatically start a nice little like isolated part of the system for you. Uh, you kind of just follow what the generator gives you, um, and I feel like having conventions like that are really helpful when you want to get started. Like it should be easy to fall into like best practices. I think they talk about that a lot, right? Like the, we 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 want it to be easy to accidentally do the right thing, kind of a thing. Um, and I appreciate how context kind of pushed you into that sort of idea of like, this is an actual namespace part of the application. Um, and you have to think really hard before you like have to accidentally push things into other contexts as well. So I think this is a good point to kind of talk about conceptually what goes into a context. What does, you know, we've kind of talked about how I identify the pieces of a system. And now it's like, all right, well, let's, let's build uh, start building some contexts. You know, that's where you're like getting very concrete. This is modules and code and functions. So what are some of the things that I would look for being common style functions that would go in my context? Well, context very often encapsulate like 
the capabilities of a business or something that needs to be represented in the business. So I talked a lot about how a, one context, um, in domain-driven design, this is called the bounded context. So, uh, okay, I'm gonna get a little bit abstract and then I'll pull it back together, I promise. So a bounded context uh, is a place where like ideas and language and terminology is bounded, <laughs> meaning like there's, there, there's boundaries in a system for which these things apply. Uh, I think, uh, what's his name, Von Vernon, uh, he's another popular author in this field. The way he explains it is a bounded context is like a country. Um, you might imagine like when you when you're in Japan and then you you, you travel to Korea or something like that, uh, the the language just change, uh, and the boundaries would be the the nation borders. And um, so, the things we represent as functions or as like entities in a system that is like the nouns and the verbs um, are the things that your business will be talking about. Uh, so. Uh, we talk a lot in domain-driven design about linguistic drivers. So if you pay attention, you'll notice your product owner or like people in your group or your business speaking a certain language, right? Like in, in marketing, for example, right? The, the lead or like the, the, uh, the conversion or something like that, you know, like the, um, there's certain terminologies that really only apply in the marketing domain. Uh, but they probably might not apply in your core domain, which might be like education or something like that. Uh, and so there's a lot of, uh, to, to circle back to your point, the, the things you're gonna wanna mod model as like methods or, uh, or as functions are probably the things happening uh, in your domain as spoken by your product owner. So a like, um, you know, an email campaign, right? Like subscribe me to your email campaign. So those words subscribe or like campaign are probably gonna be terms you're gonna be using in your function. Nice. And I also think of uh, the domain or the context in this case, like a, a module is like my out, like when we talk about a boundary, it's like the outer level or like the, I like that comparison to a country, like a country boundary. Like, so at the edge of this country boundary, we don't necessarily just let anyone walk in and out of our country. Like we have points that are kind of regulated where people have to uh, meet some requirements before they can pass through. And well, they, they certainly can't change our country's official records directly. <laughs> Darn tootin', they better not be able to. <laughs> like, yeah, I've, I hate that. Seeing like a, a repo call somewhere like in a controller, it's like, oh my goodness. Um, but yes, uh, I won't go off on that rant. Uh, but the, so the idea of, I have this boundary uh, and I love that kind of a, a country style boundary and I, I validate the inputs at this boundary and so these are the kinds of functions as I'm kind of hearing what you're saying, I'm seeing a... You know, I've got functions to say I want to create a, a, I don't know, a sales lead or a user, and I'm going to be validating the inputs at that point. I might be requesting, like getting a list of those mailing list subscriptions and with some querying logic put into it. But th that's like in terms of programming, it's my outer level or top level API. So it's that like if you think of a hierarchy of modules and functions, like the, the top level module is like your outermost layer that some other part of the system has contact with. 
And that's where you're like saying where you're having the fewest points of ingress of things coming in. And that's where that's like, that's where we're talking about these domain functions. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. And then, uh, like you said, like the, like inside, like past the context boundaries where you can do your internal stuff. Uh, so if you actually have to talk to the MailChimp API or something like that, that shouldn't be something you expose um, at the boundary. Or that's not, that's not a implementation concern that your external consumers need to know about. Josh, I see you, do, you had a question. You want to go ahead and yeah, ask yeah. that? Yeah, I didn't know if now was an appropriate time. But yeah. So do you have any open source projects that you think follow domain-driven design particularly well that you'd like to point people to? And uh, the language doesn't matter here, but you know, Elixir examples are also good. I do, well, um, I sort of do. <laughs> I, I published this sample Rails app uh, some years ago about how I, how I thought about domain-driven design. Um, it is on my GitHub. I can link to it in the show notes. Um, I, I, uh, word of caution, <laughs> it was during uh, the, my early exploration phases of domain-driven design. And uh, a lot of that has not necessarily changed, but I think it's a little bit more complex than it needs to be. So uh, go ahead and have a look and let me know what you think. Uh, but, but it was meant to illustrate some patterns that, uh, that I was talking about. Now, uh, for Elixir, I don't have any open source uh, stuff that people can look at, but I do put some code samples uh, around a sample app that I had dreamed up for my talk. Um, I can, we can pull it out in the show notes as well. Um, but yeah. Nice. Awesome. Thank you. So another thing that I really appreciated in your uh, presentation was the idea of aggregate roots. And I think that's an interesting concept and people may not have been familiar with the term. So could you just kind of give us a definition of what an aggregate root is? Yeah. An aggregate root is essentially a top level or like a, like the, the actual or, the top level entity that may uh, that by which all other like child entities get grouped by. So let's go ahead and take the example of the marketing domain again, right? Like it, it may not necessarily uh, matter that a like a land or like a site visit has has occurred. Like let's imagine we're tracking like the people visiting our site. And then everyone that visits gets their, you know, their cookie or their session like added to or something like that. Let's say we were going to track that event. Well, sometimes uh, or tracking that event may not necessarily make sense at the fine granularity of the thing you're tracking. It actually may, may make more sense to track at the aggregate route. So in this case, the aggregate route may actually be like the site visitor. Like the, the visitor may actually have more context hanging on, hanging off of them. I'm not actually sure if that's the most clear example. We can take another example as well. Um, so I think in my in my talk, I talked about um, this made up uh, car car marketplace, basically a used car marketplace. And then uh, let's imagine we were good tracking insurance records. Well, an insurance record makes no sense in the context of itself for a business. It actually needs to be it needs to hang off of like a, a vehicle or a car, right? So the car would be our aggregate route. Uh, and then the insurance record may be the, the child route. Uh, sorry, the, the, a child entity 
that's associated with the aggregate root. And to tie this all back together, uh, aggregate roots are what we should be shipping around uh, in things like our event buses, or um, if you want to, if you want to essentially record that something had changed, or like if you wanted to query for something in your domain, it's probably better only to expose your aggregate root. And the reason why is because like if you queried an insurance record by itself, um, you have to put yourself in the data consumer's mindset. When they're uh, when they pull back the insurance record, they're probably looking at it and being like, "Well, this like I need more context." So anytime you uh, your you put yourself in your consumer's uh, shoes and you think about what they're pulling out from your uh, from your data APIs, and if you ever get the sense that they're going to be like, "I don't." really understand what's going on here, I need more context, that's probably a signal that you're not sending them the right data. Or you're, you've designed your APIs to focus on uh, on uh, on the trees and you miss the forest. Is that a good analogy? Maybe not. <laughs> <laughs> I, I understand. Explaining things, yes, it's hard. Um, it's so hard. <laughs> but especially when you can't draw pictures you know, on a podcast. Sure. Uh, this episode is brought to you by TripleByte. Applying to programming jobs sucks. You have to put the right keywords in your resume. You spend hours and hours on the phone screens and take home projects. And that's assuming the company even responds to your application. Well, if you're a software engineer, TripleByte can help. They work with over 400 top tech companies from big names like Dropbox and Adobe to exciting startups. You do one brief online interview with them. And if you do well, you go straight to final interviews with the company on their platform. It's like the common app for software developers. TripleByte does not look at your resume or where you went to school. All they care about is if you can code. I've helped dozens of software developers with various credentials get jobs, and this looks like a terrific way for you to get in and get interviewed and get a job without a lot of the hassle and overhead. You can go check them out at triplebyte.com elixir. That's triplebyte.com, byte as in eight bits. As a special offer for listeners of this show, if you take a job through TripleByte, they'll offer you a $1,000 signing bonus. But one of the things I think uh, that really clicked for me is the idea that the aggregate route is not necessarily the ecto schema that I have. That I probably shouldn't be, in fact. Um, so I, I can kind of think of that as like a REST style controller. Like if I have a REST style controller that's like doing just basic CRUD actions on a a resource like a articles resource um, when someone is trying to consume something like for a, a rest api they have to ask well get me the the articles and then i'm going to make another rest call for something else and i've got to join them together and that means they have to have a lot more knowledge about how stuff is put, put together in your system outside of it and it's like sometimes we'll stick that in our our front end javascript and it's like, I, what I like about the idea of the aggregate root is like, it is not necessarily even tied to the database. And it is a conceptual view of the thing you're talking about. And it might, like if you're talking about a car, it's like, and I'm talking about it from the perspective of the licensing office and they're talking about insurance or something like that, then it's going to include the insurance thing, but not as necessarily an ecto uh, association, but as just a, a an something that's part of this combined thing and and like we can still use embedded schemas for those kinds of things in elixir so we can still use what looks like a normal schema 
but it's not actually tied to a database table. And I, I don't know, does that make sense and kind of where you see these things and how they kind of mesh? Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I think, first of all, that's just good API design or like API hygiene, right? Like you have to think about what is appropriate for your consumer to be looking at. And then we go one level deeper and you actually think about like, what are the core concepts that actually need to show up? Um, is this internal concept, is it better translated for my consumers as something else? Um, and a lot of that will actually depend on your vo domain vocabulary and, and those concepts that are coming out. Um, and if the concept that you're, that comes for free in your schema, it's not actually a published concept in your domain vocabulary, then maybe you shouldn't show it or you should translate it to something that actually makes sense. Mm, yeah. Now it's also kind of thinking about like just this layer of where we're taking uh, code and turning it into something else. And that, that we actually do that a lot in sometimes REST controllers where they're not returning just a straight, you know, database access kind of object. Uh, but we also do it with GraphQL. Like, uh, especially with GraphQL, you're, you have to define a separate schema and nodes for the, the, the view of the data to the outside, which can map to one or more or multiples uh, or like, you know, some function that you call that returns a computed result. And that is like what you're returning. I thought like that, I think that kind of matches with what, what we're talking about. There's an aggregate root or just like this conceptual thing that's, that represents my domain. That's really interesting. Uh, I'm really curious. How, how do you see this playing out in GraphQL? Like you said, it sounds like there's some native uh, abilities to do like transformations. Uh, I've, I haven't really done any GraphQL. And one question I've always had is, uh, does GraphQL push you into this world where you have like a single data model? Is it like hard to like have nuances in your APIs? I'm really curious. Well, I know Josh is also very interested in GraphQL. Do you want to take that one? Yeah, so I don't, I don't think it um, causes grief. If anything, I think that uh, like you're going to have a unified domain language of some sort that doesn't have overlaps on, on some level. So if, if anything, I think it helps with that. I also have been thinking about how, um, so what I do these days is primarily build apps that interact with GraphQL APIs to do stuff, right? And so what we've been doing is explicitly building sort of the, the app and mocking out its data. And then we drive that down into, okay, well, here's the query I need. And so I'll return mock data from the back end. And then we drive that down into, okay, let's actually build the nitty gritty to, to perform functioning something for this query. And I, I feel like it gives you a little bit of the organization. If you do that pattern, I think it gives you kind of a little bit of the aggregate style organization just from the get-go because on the homepage, I'm not showing my featured item data model. I'm showing like a homepage featured item something, right? Which is where I would do the transformation. Um, and anyway, I, I think that's interesting. I've, I was trying to think about how explicitly I can go one step further and start branching out into more, more proper context a little earlier, I think. Um, anyway, but yeah, I, I, think that, I think that it fits very well with GraphQL like conceptually. It sounds like a talk I would attend, Josh. <laughs> yeah, so one of the things that's interesting about GraphQL, um, for especially those of our listeners who aren't uh, familiar with it too terribly, uh, instead of controllers, you're writing something called a resolver. And the resolver 
So internally, it's taking this GraphQL query that was a JSON-inspired kind of expression of the data that you want and the structure you want it to be in. And you're sending that, and then it, Absinthe on the back end is breaking that apart and turning it into, oh, I need to resolve this query piece to go grab articles, and this query piece needs to go grab users. And that, that's where it then turns into individual functions. And so you can have like a custom function that says how I display full name is maybe a computed property. You can kind of think of it like that. And so that is how I want to represent that data in my uh, interface, my API interface. And so yeah, the most, you, the most common, the first one I always run into is like avatar URL because that's not what I represent that piece of data as, right? I, I have an image somewhere, but I just want to give the front end a URL to represent, to show. So that's always my first uh, transformation. Nice. That's a good example. Yeah. So I, I was also thinking about, uh, so anyway, GraphQL, I think is a, a fun way of just saying, oh, I have this other layer that is separate from my data layer. And that is where I can make it more appropriate to the consumer. It still doesn't quite go as far as we were talking about DDD in that I might have multiple interfaces uh, where I would have different language being used for the different perspectives. Um, it, it could, uh, you could still have like a, a GraphQL query that kind of comes at it from the sales perspective. And that or would you be could have a different schema for each. Yeah, you can have a different exactly. schema for each. I think that might be the most clean way to, to map it. That would be better, yeah. And I also, of course, you know, I started thinking about Live View. How does that work with Live View? And so, Andrew, I, I know you're not necessarily, you know, Live View's not even like a shipping thing yet, but I, I presume you've heard about it. I've been following. <laughs> I've definitely been following. Uh, yeah. Is it a thing? It, I mean, it seems super nifty. It is super cool. And there's always uh, neat new um, demo kind of projects where as people explore it and find what's it good for and where are the cases where I'm, where, where is it safe to adopt this in my organization and make a commitment to it. But currently, as, I, as we're recording this, it's still not a shipping like on hex PM, like with a release number. It's like you're having to pull it off of GitHub. But so I started thinking about Live View. And what I like about that is... I still want an aggregate route that's closer to the live view that's basically saying, how do I get this data represented for this particular view of the data? And what do I call it? What's appropriate to this view, this consumer? Uh, you know, I might have different types of uh, user logins where one is a salesperson or a mechanic, like kind of going back to your perspective of, of the, uh, the, your example app with the car scenario. Yeah, you can think of that sort of like a view model also. Yes, that's a great way to put that. Yeah, so it's a view model, but it's not necessarily tied to a view, like the aggregate root idea. It's like, this is how I would encapsulate this data and wrap it up to conceptualize and pull together various different pieces of data that are relevant to the way it's, it's called to the mechanic. They care about service history, but they don't care about um, you know, payment history that kind of a thing. So it's like totally. what, what they care about is different. Yeah. Um, you, what you're talking about kind of makes me think a lot about kind of uh, ports and adapters. Like we're talking about, or I think domain driven design literature oftentimes references uh, work by I think Alistair Cockburn. He talks a lot about hexagonal architectures, uh, which is basically a world in which like you have a core domain, which we've, uh, synthesized and like developed with 
DDD tools. And then there's ports and adapters. Uh, for example, LiveView could be the, uh, the presentation adapter uh, to the HTML and the, um, all the events that are being sent back and forth between the UI and the core domain. And so I think this is a really great example of how we might also then uh, think further about how to architect uh, live view interfaces into your uh, context or your domain. Yeah, I like, uh, I like the, so I, I really like GraphQL subscriptions in absinthe. They work like extremely well. Um, I like the idea of, I don't know, having, having the, the GraphQL subscriptions around it seems a lot more like making a, a general purpose client interface adapter rather than I can make some HTML. And I come at it from that perspective because I am building mobile apps very regularly. Um, but I can also reuse those subscriptions on the web interfaces that, that we build as well. So I like uh, something, something about just GraphQL for all of the front end, everything makes me really happy. Yeah, what I, what I like about that point you made is like, LiveView does not make sense if you're building a mobile app, right? You just, that doesn't work. Or an LMAP. What's that? Or an Elm app. Right, yeah. And, but what I love about the idea of like these uh, domain-driven design and where I'm kind of thinking about these contexts and these, the different views of my data and creating an aggregate that kind of pulls the other things that are relevant to this conceptual view of my data is that still sits behind your presentation, like Andrew was saying. And, and so like, I can then say, well, here's my live view presentation of that. Here is my GraphQL presentation of that. And, and that can map very cleanly to those. And so I, I just think it, it's still, there's still value in that, even if you say, well, I'm, I'm building a, you know, a, a backend that only talks to mobile front ends. You know, there's still value in kind of thinking about this and breaking it out and identifying what is the shape of this glom of data that makes sense to this view? Like as I'm, as I'm logging in and maybe I'm doing um, like repair work. And so what I care about is, is, is going to be very different from what the, the accounting office cares about. So it's just like being able to pull that all together. And this is the view that you care about. It doesn't include the IDs to the things that don't, that aren't relevant. So I don't know. I think it's, I just want to make sure that people see that, there's still value in this, even though they might be thinking of their app in a very narrow scope. Yeah, I was, I was overly curmudgeonly there. <laughs> <laughs> that wasn't against you at all, Josh. <laughs> no, but I was. I, I think there's a, a good conversation to be had about how far is too far, right? Like, um, I have a counterpoint or a counter story of which uh, I was doing work for, a, for another client. And I was so gung-ho about this whole thing. I had developed a beautiful domain layer. I had segregated out the domains. Uh, I had, it, it was beautiful, but it was way too much. Um, this was a, you know, a, I was working with some, some, some founders and we were developing an MVP for them. And really they didn't need uh, half of what I wrote something like that. <laughs> and so I think there's a great conversation to be had about like, do, when do you need this? And I think, uh, I think either Eric Evans or Von Vernon talks a lot about like, uh, you need, you need these design tools when the business, when the business is more complex than your code, meaning like your code is not the limiting factor. The, the complexity of the business is the limiting factor. Um, and, that may or may not be appropriate in like small uh, 
startup environments, but definitely when you get to the enterprises, uh, you're going to start needing a lot of these tools. Thank you for mentioning that. I think that is very, you know, oftentimes when we talk about any kind of new concept, uh, we can tend to over prescribe it and use it uh, beyond what is appropriate. So I think that's very good to, because it's also good to kind of just kind of think about where are the appropriate boundaries of using this and applying this and like, yeah, an MVP, it's really supposed to be minimum, right? Like what is the least I can do to deliver on the business need? Uh, but it's also, I, I think of, you know, even if it's a initial project, you kind of think, what, are, what is it that we're shooting for? You know, if I'm, I, I kind of use this comparison uh, talking with a client where, um, you know, if I'm building a house, the way I build a shed in my backyard versus a two-story house versus a skyscraper is different. And if I know what I'm building at the front, I'm going to spend a different amount of time planning an architecture and thinking about that. Because like if the house, if the, if the shed falls over, that's an inconvenience, right? It's like, that's an annoyance. If the house falls over, well, that's tragic. Someone's possibly died. If the skyscraper goes, collapses, that's catastrophic. So, so I, have it's a, like, I have a counterpoint. I think yeah. that everything that you said is, is completely true. But you don't regularly build a shed in your side yard and then have someone tell you, I will throw you a lot of money if you will make this into a skyscraper. <laughs> and, then, and then have to live with the consequences of saying, okay. Because um, that's what happens when someone's small project succeeds. And if, it's not, if the transition isn't explicitly managed like immediately, then you get into a horrible position, which is why I fall on the, I err on the over-architect a little bit side mm -hmm. uh, all the time because I have paid far more pain from having not done that than I have paid pain in, in having done that when it wasn't needed. Yeah. Well, I think a lot of it comes down to that initial understanding of the problem domain. If the problem domain is a blog, that's, that's like the shed, you know? Uh, but if it's like, well, I'm trying to build something where I'm, you know, going to be communicating with 10,000 devices simultaneously. It's like, well, automatically you're, you're on the higher end of complexity. So I think it really does kind of come down to a, a what's appropriate and like, you know, building something lift scale. That's, that's a little higher end that they're aiming higher from the beginning. There so definitely a lot of complexity there. <laughs> well, I think this is a great, this is a great point. Like we need to incrementally like up our architecture game as the stakes get higher or as the complexity rises. I think to Josh's point, like we do need to really, uh, err on the side of maybe over a little bit. I think everyone's project or everyone's team will have a different set of capabilities and your tendencies. But I think as developers, we're used to shipping fast. Um, and it's, it might not hurt to pull everyone in a room and, like whiteboard a little bit, do a little bit of diagramming. Maybe like it might be worth putting up a PR to rename a concept or to pull, you know, to decouple something. I think these are all like code hygiene or like architecture hygiene things we know to, to do, but it's actually really hard to carve out time to do it. And so I would encourage my fellow developers to also like be, to, to recognize opportunities uh, to, to kind of do these things. And hopefully domain-driven design gives us a, a few more tools in our belts to really see how we can uh, develop a clearer sense of what we are building in the problem space. Yeah, that's, that's well put. I think, I think the one thing that you could do is make sure you put kind of uh, very lightweight seams in your project in certain places that make it easier for you to uh, 
I guess, differentiate or translate something between two systems. And that's what I, that's actually the thing I like the most about the sort of prototyping and GraphQL piece of building stuff lately is like, there's, that's always a scene. You'll always have the resolvers and they'll make sense anyway. Yeah. And so the other thing, like Josh and I were talking before we got on and started the podcast and just talking about how um, you really kind of, you know, I, I can say, well, I can always do better at this. I'm not doing like the perfect way of doing this. And, you know, my view is like, that's okay, that it's in degrees. And if I start off with a good, thoughtful structure of code where I'm trying to apply contexts, they may not be perfect. I might be leaking too much information and that's okay. Uh, but I've already, I've already got some structure in place and I already have some thought into where things go. So as it grows, as the complexity increases in one area that I didn't expect, I didn't foresee that this area would become more complex, then I can start to adjust and apply maybe a higher degree in that part of the code. Yeah, I think the nice thing about starting with context, even if you get them completely wrong, <laughs> is they do give you a thing you can look at and say like, well, that's obviously wrong. Why is, right. this, why is this user's context talking about payments or whatever? Right, you know, but it, at least there's a structure, right? As yeah, opposed a, to, well, the logic is everywhere. Yeah, there's enough structure that you're not like, well, of course the controller got payments right there or whatever. <laughs> I think yeah. even in the context docs, I was reading these a while ago. I think they actually encourage you to like start, like throw something against the wall and like refactor it or rename it as you, as you actually discover your use cases. So th there is this kind of notion that contexts are meant to evolve and uh, we should take advantage of that. Also, Elixir is like fundamentally easier to refactor than a lot of other languages because you, you just have functions and, and modules and attributes and that's all you have. So um, yeah, I think, I think doing it wrong in Elixir has less cost because you can't couple things accidentally at least. Nice. Well, is there anything else we want to talk about and mention before we close? All right, well, let's go to picks. Uh, Josh, do you have one that you'd like to share? Yes, I need to pull it up, but uh, it is the Telegram desktop applications source mm. code. Oh. So this is uh, open source, and it's C++ and Qt and cross-platform. And I didn't actually see any, any tests when I looked through it, but I sure hope there are tests somewhere. Um, anyway, but it's, uh, it's, it's just nicely written and I like it and it's plenty complex to be an interesting read. Awesome. And I will mention, uh, for mine is recently Jose Valim came out and talking about what's new in Elixir one nine. And the big one that's coming out is taking releases, which is currently being or previously being handled by like uh, libraries like distillery and moving that into the Elixir proper. So like there's a mixed release that's part of the built-in library. And so I've been exploring with that right now. I'm, I'm having to work off of master branch. Uh, it's not yet released, but it is something to start looking at and kind of becoming aware of like his blog post of what are some of the new things that are coming. Just something to familiarize yourself with. And that's it for me. Andrew, you have something? I have two. Um, well, the first one is kind of like, I should link to a domain-driven design book if people are interested and want to get started. And uh, there's a great book called Domain-Driven Design Distilled, D-D-D-D. <laughs> but uh, it's actually fairly good. If, if you find yourself getting tripped up in a lot of like 
the literature out there. Um, this is a good book to get your company to buy for you, basically. It's going to be worth it. Uh, uh, the author kind of starts from a lot of the core concepts around planning and, and design and then takes it into actual like code samples like at the end. But in the world of domain-driven design, you can get really lost, but I, I would kind of start with the, with, the, with the strategic kind of stuff with, uh, and the understanding the concepts and like the root principles of what's uh, coming down the pipe. So that's my first pick. The second pick is I've, I've, uh, I've been trying to get into data science a little bit, and I've been trying to like understand the world of my fellow data scientists here. Um, and as part of my uh, my homework, I have to learn linear algebra again, uh, which is not a small feat. Super confusing, uh, but there is this really cool like manga guide to linear algebra. Um, I think it's written in Japanese, but they translate it to English, and of course it's math, so uh, it will translate itself but um I'll, I'll 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 send out a link to it as well but um it's an entertaining way to learn uh linear algebra <laughs> and there's like photos of like bento boxes and ramen and then the the characters get into this karate competition and stuff it's really fun that is cool but, yeah. i found linear algebra intensely boring <laughs> well see that's it's because really you have ramen boxes that's right <laughs> Well, that's cool. Uh, Andrew, thank you so much for coming on. This has given us a, 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 me a lot to think about continually. And I hope our audience has enjoyed it and kind of given them something to think about. And I totally encourage them to check out your presentation that you gave. It's on YouTube. The link is in the show notes. And how, if people are interested in following you or kind of uh, getting in touch with you, how should they do that? Well, I'm on Twitter at Andrew Howe, A-N-D-R-E-W-H-A-O. Uh, the same at GitHub. And you can find me in either, either of those sites. All right. Well, Andrew, thank you for coming on. And that's it for today. We hope you'll join us next week on Elixir Mix. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.